together? I mean, okay, come on. Some of you had to keep your kids home all week. Isn't it good to be together? <laughs> you know, I said this a few weeks ago. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Sarah Kolbacher, for being here with us. We love you guys. We love all of you. We love you as well. said a few weeks ago, this, this opportunity that we have in the midst of what's going on in our country and the decisions specifically around schools and whether or not they're going to meet together affects most of us in some way, shape, or form. And if it doesn't, it should because we have an opportunity as the church, not just, hey, you're a parent, so you figure it out. We have an, we have an opportunity as the people of God, as a church of God, to come up with creative solutions that make a difference in the world. Some of you are like, I can't get my kids up to brush their teeth and get on their Zoom calls in time. What I'm saying is there is a new grace. There is fresh grace every time we face something that's a conundrum in the world. There's a fresh grace if we will stop and ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? What part do you want me to play? And so we can be the people that join with everybody else and get upset that Williamsville started the year and then canceled partway through, not canceled, went all the way online and, and get worked up about that because it's not fair and it's frustrating, right? Like, those are real feelings. And I don't know what your school district's doing. Or we can say, God, what part do you want me to play? How do you want me to be part of the solution? Not only for my kids, but for the kids around me, for the families around me, for the school district. Maybe, maybe they're just waiting for a Daniel to rise up. Somebody that comes and says, how can I serve you? Maybe, maybe there's a school superintendent that's just like, I just need, like maybe they're praying. Maybe they don't even know how to pray, but they're like, God, I need an answer. And they're just waiting for a phone call from somebody of the people of God to say, I don't even know how to solve this, but I'm here to serve you. And, and maybe like you just answer phone calls for them for a couple hours. And that, that creates the space for that person to think creatively, come up with a fresh solution. What if, what if New York came up with a fresh solution? That would, be, that would be a God revival, wouldn't it? If the solution came out of New York. Right? Let's not let that mindset that, that no good thing comes out of Western New York. I know we're all proud of Western New York, but sometimes we carry around a little bit of a chip on our shoulder, Right? But what if the answer came out of this region? Like, like, just, God, expand our horizons. Like, lift our heads to see different. Because he, he doesn't see it the same as we do. Right? He just doesn't. That's not my message. That's just... Th- just think for a minute. He said that he would send the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth and the truth would set us free. Where does that truth lie? It lies with God, but why? he could have just said, and I'm just gonna work it out, right? But he said, I'll send the Holy Spirit, not just to be with us, but to fill us to overflowing and empower us to walk that out. You and the Holy Spirit are the solution to whatever is in front of you. 
very clearly, not, not ourselves, not our own strength, but God has chosen to work with people in his sovereignty and his goodness. So you don't get to stand there and say, I'm the solution. But you do get to say, I serve a God that has the solutions. And he lives and resides in me. And so I'm just here to serve his kingdom and serve people. And so me and the Holy Spirit together will somehow have the solution. How many of you, that sounds a little um, presumptive. It, it feels a little presumptive to me, but I think God wants to push on that so that we are willing to put him out there. He, he's not, he doesn't feel out there when you put him out there. He doesn't struggle with that like us. He doesn't have an inferiority complex. He's not sim- simply self-deprecating. And so let's allow him to, to use us. Let's get a little bit of presumptiveness in us. That's a wrong word, but a little bit of like, God's got this. And not like, I'm just going to sit and pray and wait till God does something. But God, God's going to do something with me. God, I put myself, I'm like Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me, use me. I should preach on this. Jesus, we pray that the solutions would come out of this region. Lord, as your people are gathered here this morning before you in this church and churches all over Western New York, Father, we pray that you would give us a fresh revelation, not only of who you are, but who we are in you and what's possible when a people walk with you. And Lord, we don't just ask for like one solution, that you'd anoint some special person to do that. We ask that you'd have multiple solutions through your people on the, on the macro level, like ideas that change the whole landscape. And God, on the micro level, things that change individuals' lives and revolutionize their lives. Lord, let us not be the people that sit back and point fingers and complain and get frustrated only. But God, let us be part of your solution as your people humbly wait before you and receive power to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's switch, switch it up. We're gonna start a new series this morning. And it's a series called Ready. And as we get ready to jump into that series, I just have a question for you. How many of you ever watched the show Doomsday Preppers? Am I the only person that's, like, okay, I know, like, some of you are like, I watch it. And others of you are like, I watch it. <laughs> How many of you have watched Doomsday Preppers? I just, I need to know so I can, because I might have to explain it. All right, Doomsday Preppers, I don't think is a show that's in production anymore, because Doomsday didn't come quick enough for the people that they profiled. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, sort of. And so there's this show where this, this production company goes around the country, I think they might have even done it internationally, and find people that are waiting for everything to collapse. And not only just waiting and expecting it, like they're working on it. They're building bunkers in their house, they're stockpiling food, they're getting weapons, they're training their family on how to bug out quickly, they're building, they're building boats so that they can get across rivers, uh, they're buying silos, old missile silos and building impregnable uh, fortresses in them. 
because they expect the collapse of the economy or the United States or of um, just all different kinds of stuff. And what they do in this show is they invite the prepping experts in to evaluate their preparations. And they give them a grade. And it's, it's hilarious because at the end they always give them a grade and it's never what the prepper thought. The prepper's always like, we got this, man, we're good to go. And then when they get evaluated by the experts, they're like, uh, you don't have enough water and you're not, you don't have clear communication. And like, they're like, uh-uh, no, we're good. How many of you have watched that show? And when you start watching the show, you're like, these people are out of their minds. But by the end of the show, you're like, maybe they're onto something. I want a gun, right? It's, it's a show that plays on or takes a look at the human condition that we believe as things get bad, we need to be ready for them. We probably already heard from lots of people, especially recently, that we are living in the end times. Some of you may, have, may be the people that are telling others that we are living in the end times. And when we think about end times as people, not just as believers, but as people, we tend to think of things not going so well at the end, right? Why are, why are world destruction movies so popular, Right? Some of you might have read that there's an asteroid coming towards the earth that's supposed to hit like two days before the election. And it, it might hit, like there's a, there's a half of a percent chance that it will impact the earth. But don't worry, it's not a deep impact, it's just a glancing blow. And for some of us, we laugh at it, and others, others of us were like, I don't know what that's going to do. And so we hear about end times and it, 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 it tends to shake us. We either dismiss it, we laugh at it, or if we stop to think about it, it shakes us to the core. We think about doomsday, disaster, Armageddon, the return of Christ. There's lots of definitions and opinions about what the end of days looks like. And you can have it with a non-Christian worldview. right? How many, what was that movie that came out a few years ago about the end of the Mayan calendar? right? And people said, oh, well, the Mayans counted up through this certain time and they got to the end of their calendar, and if we get to the end of their calendar, they must have known something we don't know, so the world's going to end, because they don't have any more counting. What if they just ran out of stones to put the calendar on? And so we get to this place where there's non-Christian worldviews. Hey, there's going to be an asteroid that destroys the earth. There's going to be another deep impact thing, like what you know, made the dinosaurs become extinct. We're going to become extinct. We're going to melt our planet, or whatever it is that we think are going to happen. There's non-Christian worldviews that have an end of the world in mind. But there's also Christian worldviews. And here's the thing. When we think about the end times, because Scripture talks about the end times, Jesus talked about the end times. We have to understand this, that from a Christian worldview, there are multiple approaches and ideas, many based in Scripture, about what the end times looked like. We read what Jesus said. We read what John wrote in Revelation. We read what Daniel saw and wrote. And we have, there are Christians that have very sincere but differing views about what it looks like for the end of, end of days. Here's the thing. Most of our talk about end times is something being shaken. And when things get shaken for human beings, we get antsy, don't we? 
You're like, no, I'm, I'm set. Have you ever had to wait too long in the cof- coffee line at Tim Hortons? That's, it becomes the end of days for you, right? Everything narrows, you get into a tunnel, and you, you just lose your salvation. Nobody knows because you're in the car by yourself, but you lose your salvation. You start uttering curses at the Tim Hortons or the person in front of you that's taking too long for their order. When, things, when we get shaken, when we don't get what we want, when, it doesn't look, when what our normal is gets shifted, we get antsy as human beings, don't we? You know, Jesus said this, everything's going to get shaken. In Matthew chapter 24, we have this incredible interaction with Jesus and his disciples. And the the chapter starts with this. And it's important to understand, we're going to talk about what happened before chapter 24 and what happens in chapter 24, what happens after. But in the very beginning of chapter 24, it says Jesus was leaving the temple grounds. He has just ripped to shreds the teachers of the religious law. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And as he's leaving the temple grounds, the disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. They're like, hey, check this out. Look look at what has been constructed because this was a time when the temple was in its zenith in terms of uh, uh, ornateness and beauty and structure. And they're like, like, "Look look at what has been accomplished here. And Jesus says this to them. He says, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. Understand this. This is not just like Jesus saying, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed. This is Jesus absolutely flipping the script on his disciples, saying everything you know about your religious structures, about your political structures, about your security and our identity is going to be destroyed. And not just like, hey, somebody else is going to take over for a little while. He says, not one stone left on the other. You cannot underestimate the amount of shaking Jesus was telling his disciples were coming to their lives. That was the end of days for them. When he said, this is going to be gone, that was the, they, they could not imagine a world outside of what they saw. It wasn't part of their worldview. How do I know that? Because it says in the next verse, later Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, which is directly across. You can see from the Mount of Olives, this whole complex. And his disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us when all this will happen, what sign will signal your return, and What? the end of the world. This was it. There wasn't anything apart from this. He was shaking everything. When things get shaken, we have lots of questions, just like the disciples do. And our questions usually revolve around the same things. When is this going to happen? What are the signs? And how do we know this is the end? That's what we as human beings do. When our stuff gets shaken... And for some of us, we've experienced over the last few months a shaking, right? Our, our, our systems feel like they're breaking, and some of them have broken. Some of us are expecting whatever result happens in our election and, and, and that it's all going to go to pot. This is the end. And if you listen to the, the both conventions of the Democratic and Republican Party, they're both telling you doomsday is coming. 
Every speech, if we don't get elected, it's the end of our country as we know it. They're playing on that human thing that we all go through that says, if, if, it, if it isn't like I like it, if it isn't as I've experienced it, it's all going to crumble. And so we ask Jesus, when is this going to happen? What are the signs of your return? What, when is the end of the world? The term for these, the answers to these questions is eschatology. Have you ever heard the term? Let's get theological for a second. Eschatology. Eschatology just means the study or the teaching of the end of things. And so when we talk about eschatology, there's a couple different types of eschatology. The first type of eschatology is per- personal eschatology. We all, we all practice that when somebody in our family passes away. That's, the, that's the, the theology, the understanding of what happens to us when we end this human life. Heaven and hell. Are we with God and do we go to heaven? What does that look like? Resurrection. But then there's the general eschatology. What happens at the end of the world for everybody? So when we talk about eschatology, we're talking, we could be talking about heaven, hell, resurrection of the dead, rapture, tribulation, the millennial, judgment, new heavens, new earth. There's lots of things to talk about. And the truth is this, there are lots of ideas about it. There's futurists who believe that anything that refers to the end times mostly refers to things that have not yet happened but will happen in the future. When we read scripture about end times, didn't happen yet, it's going to be in the future. There's preterism, which says that almost everything, uh, almost all of the prophecies that we've read have been fulfilled. And there's partial preterism that says some of them were fulfilled and some of them will be fulfilled and we're partway in between it. There's historicism, which says that everything we read about the end times in scripture that are symbols for actual historical figures and, and movements Progressive, there's this progressive filament from the time that those prophecies were uttered until the second coming of Jesus. And then there's idealism that just says it's all just an allegory. It's, it mean, it's a symbol for something else. There's all different ways to interpret what we read in Scripture. There's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial that has to do with is there going to be a thousand year reign of Christ on earth? What's it going to look like? There's pre-trib, there's post-trib, there's mid-trib, there's no-trib. There's rapture and there's no rapture. Here's, the, here's what I, we have to understand as believers. Because I, I said this last week, the enemy would love to divide us. He'd love to divide us politically. He'd love to divide us spiritually and doctrinally if he could. There's, it is possible to hold absolutely separate views on what the end times looks like and still be a brother and sister in Christ. But that doesn't, abdicate the, that doesn't give us permission to abdicate the responsibility to speak about it and know about it. We can't just say, well, I don't want to know what you have to say. I've got my own opinions. And let's just not even look at Scripture because it's too confusing. We should look at it. We should study it. The Assemblies of God, just to be fair, is generally a futurist, pre-trib, pre-millennial when it comes. Does anybody, does anybody know what I just said? See, that's the problem, right? Does that make sense? Anybody confused? How many of you would like to know what God says about it? How many of you would like to have a framework that makes sense, something that you can use practically right now to live the way God wants you to live in the times that we're living in? Maybe it's helpful to know this, that the approach that we take to this is really important. Not just to end times theology, but our, our, our approach to God himself. God himself. 
See, how we approach the Lord determines how we interpret what he's saying to us. Jesus spent a lot of time in chapter 23 of Matthew criticizing the religious leaders who approached God wrong. These were people that claimed very sincerely to know what God was up to. And they claimed to speak for God. And Jesus says, you have approached God wrong. In fact, if you look at chapter 23 of Matthew, it's, it's completely a broken approach. And I think some of us need to start to admit that maybe our approach to God in general and when it comes to end times is broken. This is broken. And the great news is this, God heals brokenness. Holy Spirit is here to give us revelation that brings us into the truth of who he is. Because you can grab any verse you want to make it prove what you think it ought to prove. And people have done a great job at that. But here's what Jesus said. Be open to the effect that you may be claiming to speak for God. You may have a complete religious system. You may have a complete end time system that makes absolute sense to you and a hundred other people around you. You may have people listening to you and following you and you may have it wrong. And so Jesus says to the people that are listening, he calls the, the teachers of the religious times, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he calls them in verse 3 of 20, chapter 23, hypocrites. He calls them heavy burden layers that won't help anybody else. If that's not a description of some end time people, I don't know who would, you know what I'm saying? Hey, the world's coming to end. I'm getting guns and ammo and food and I'm going to build a bunker in my basement and sorry, there's no room for you. Well, thanks for the good news. He says, you're all show. You're all image. He says, you love to be honored. You want to be known as a father. You want to be known as a teacher. You want to exalt yourself in the eyes of other people. You shut the door to heaven. Some of us, in our end times approach to God, are shutting the door to heaven for other people. Sorry, I didn't mean for that to like cut. I'm just saying we need to be aware that how we approach God and what we talk about will, has effect on people. And it doesn't mean we water down the truth, but it means we have to have an approach to God that will bring people to him rather than drive them away. Now, there are some people that are just going to be opposed to God, but if we're jerks and we just say, well, they're just opposed to God, they didn't want to listen, that's not the way to approach it. Every, I believe the greatest human right is for every person to have an accurate uh, telling and demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that you give people hell in their lives and not heaven. You're literally delivering hell to them. He calls them blind fools. He says you make up silly rules. He says you're hypocrites because you're careful to tithe, but you ignore justice, mercy, and faith. You get wrapped up in the rules. And this is important in our approach to God, especially in our approach to end time things. People tend to get like rule-based and tend to say, well, this and this and equals this. He says, listen, don't neglect the more important things. Like you should tithe, but what about justice, mercy, and faith? You should study scripture and prophecy, but what about justice, mercy, and faith? He says, you're hypocrites. You wash the cup on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. You're whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but you're dead and impure on the inside. He says, you're snakes and you're sons of vipers. You kill the prophets. You set up monuments to them. It's important to note that all of these things can be done in the name of Christ. He wasn't just criticizing Pharisees. 
There are literally people that claim the name of Christ that do the same thing. And they, we, people can look like followers of Jesus but not be following him. What was Jesus' approach? Jesus' approach is in verse 37 of Matthew 23. His approach was from the heart of the Father. He said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones God's messengers, how often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' heart for the people of God was not you've gotten it wrong. I mean, he just spent the entire chapter ripping them to shreds. But what was his heart for them? His heart was still to gather them in, to protect them, to give them heaven. But he highlighted something that's so important, human choice. Human choice. And so Jesus' disciples, in the midst of this, they come, they come to Jesus, who's literally looking over Jerusalem that he just spent time grieving over, and he answers these questions. When? What's the sign? When's the end? Here's the things we do know. Jesus says this in chapter 24. Many will claim to be the Messiah and deceive people. He says many will turn away and hate each other. He said there's going to be destruction locally in Judea. He's speaking specifically to the people of Judea. He says, when this happens, leave. And that was fulfilled. That part of the prophecy was fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed. His prophetic utterance that not one stone will be left on the other was fulfilled when the temple was raised by the Romans. Here's what he said. He is returning. Make no mistake about that. We ought to all agree on that. He is coming back. There will be signs to his coming. But understand this. Nobody knows the day or the hour. He said that several times. In fact, his disciples, after his death and resurrection, were meeting with him. And they're like, hey, when's this all going to happen? And Jesus is like, slow down, buddies. It's not for you to know that times but you will receive power he literally re-preaches this message after his resurrection he says there's something for you to be about and it's not about trying to figure it out listen if we spend all of our eschatology trying to figure out when it's going to happen we are missing the point of what he's telling us and telling us that he's coming back he is coming back make no mistake about it it will be like in the days of noah most people will be partying Given in marriage, it, most people will be living regular lives. He says very clearly, some are going to be ready and others won't be. You can read this. This is all in chapter 24. In verse 42, he says, so keep watch. Be ready. And that leans into the doctrine of eminence, meaning there's nothing standing in the way of Jesus returning. There doesn't have to be a sacrifice in the temple or certain things that happen in the book of Revelation for us to understand, oh, now he's coming. We don't get to put it off. Jesus can return at any time. He's coming for a bride that's spotless. So he says in chapter 24, verse 44, so you also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. And then Jesus shares 
three principles, sorry, three parables describing how to be ready. How many of you would like to be ready for his return? He says, be ready. And he shares three parables that give us principles of how we ought to be ready. All of this is here, all of this, you know, this is Jesus' interpretation on what he just said. How many know when Jesus prophesies, we should take his interpretation over someone else's? Right? And so all this stuff is prophesied, and then Jesus says, and this is how you live to be. He tells three parables, three, three accounts of how you and I can live ready. And we don't have time to preach all three of them. But we're gonna break, I'm going to talk about them real briefly, and we'll have some time to break them out through the rest of this series. Sound good? All right, so Jesus says this. He says first, he teaches on the parable of the servant. This is the end of chapter 24. It starts in verse 45. And he says, listen, if you're going to be a servant of mine, I want you to be faithful and I want you to be sensible. He says basically, listen, uh, it's, bless, it's a blessing if you're serving me when I come back to give you a reward because you've been doing a good job. But he says the temptation often is for servants when their master's away to turn evil and to stop regarding the work that God has given them, to forget what God has called them to. What he's basically saying in this parable is this, be engaged in proper servant leadership and care and feeding of God's people. If we're going to live ready, we ought to be engaged in the care and leadership of God's people and of God's resources. We don't get to stick our head in the sand and just wait for him to come down and save us out of this earth. We have to be engaged. That's like the servant going, well, my master's been gone, so I'm just going to kind of live how I want, and I'm waiting for him to come and fix everything. No, he's saying be engaged in caring for the people of God. He says this, a faithful servant, a sensible servant, is one whom the master can give responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. Then he tells the parable of the ten virgins, or the ten bridesmaids. He says there were ten bridesmaids that were waiting for the bridegroom to come, and they they took their lamps, and they took oil, and they were waiting, and as they were waiting, they fell asleep, and then they heard the shout that the bridegroom was coming, so they all woke up. Now there were five foolish virgins, uh, bridesmaids, and five Wise bridesmaids, and the five wise had brought extra oil for their lamps. So they got up. They heard he was coming. They knew he was coming. They were ready. They were expecting his coming. They knew he was there. But some of them weren't ready because they didn't bring extra oil. And so they all lit their lamps, and they were waiting. And the bridegroom was still a little bit delayed in coming. Right? We've heard the call that he's calling us to be ready, but sometimes he doesn't come in our timetable. And so... Jesus says the wise bridesmaids were those who carried extra oil. And the ones who didn't have extra said, give us some of yours. And they said, no. That's really ungenerous. They said, go get some for yourself. You go, because otherwise there may not be enough for us. What, what, is the oil repre- what does oil represent in the scripture? Holy Spirit. Do you know that I can't give you more of the Holy Spirit? I can pray for you, but who gives you the Holy Spirit? Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. Break the whole thing down. Jesus is literally saying, be filled with the Spirit. 
As you live ready, you and I are called to be filled with the Spirit. Not to go to church, not to believe the right thing, not to expect Jesus' return, but literally to be connected to him. We live ready when we are connected to Jesus Christ. When we are in vital, intimate relationship with him and we are filled with the Spirit of God. And then he teaches the third thing. It's the parable of the three servants. Oh, sorry, just real quick. In case you're wondering about being full of the Spirit, like how, how do I make myself full of the Spirit? The great news is Jesus, God prophesied in Joel and God delivered on the day of Pentecost and Peter quoted the book of Joel when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. He said, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Some of you are like, well, pastor, you should be full of the Spirit and I'll just come and receive some of that. Jesus' plan was to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. doesn't matter if you're old or young, it doesn't matter if you're a servant or a master, he breaks down every barrier and says, I'm going to pour my spirit on all flesh. Remember, when Jesus prophesies something, we should listen to his interpretation of it. He has whatever we need to be filled with the spirit. And then he teaches the, the parable of the servants. And he says <clears throat> to the servants that He says basically that, that a man is, leaves a, his kingdom in charge of three servants. And we're very familiar with one of this. He gives different amounts of responsibility and resources to each one. And then they come back and they report what they've done with their resources. And the one with five gives them five back. And the one with two gives them two, two back. But they give them more. They give them double back. And then the one servant comes back and says, listen, uh, like I knew you were a hard master and I was afraid... And so I hid what you gave me. But I'm going to give you back what I got. Like, you didn't lose anything. Here it is. And Jesus says, throw that servant out. Jesus literally saying to us, we, if we are good and faithful servants, if we're ready for his come, we will be actively pursuing the expansion of his kingdom. Sometimes our end time theology is to hunker down and hold on to what we got, circle the wagons, and wait till he comes to fix it all. And he says that's not his plan and his purpose. If we are to live ready, we will be actively advancing his kingdom with what he's given us. He doesn't ask us to do more than what he's given us. But he's asking us to do something with what we have. And it's not hoarding. It's not going inward. It's not just waiting for him to show up and fix it. It's actively extending his kingdom rule through the resources that he's given us. And that's not just the leader's responsibility. That's not just the mid-level leader's responsibility. It's the one-talent person's responsibility. So the, the excuse isn't, God, I, I don't have that much to give. God's like, you got something. And you can actively be advancing the kingdom. When we are willing to take responsibility, when we're willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're willing to advance the kingdom, we'll be living ready. And I think that's an approach and a framework based on the heart of Jesus that is useful and actionable today. Yeah. And it prepares not only us for the return of Christ, but it prepares others as well. Because we can say to the other bridesmaids right now, get filled. We can say to our brothers and sisters, you're struggling, let me help you. Let me care for you, let me feed you. Spiritually, physically. We can look at the resources we have and say, God, 
what have you given me right now and how can it be put into practice? How can it be used to extend your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven now? And that's a powerful thing, to live ready. If you want to live ready, if you want to live those things out, if you want to live Jesus' interpretation of what to do to get, be ready for his return, not just the end times, his return, would you stand with me? And in standing, here's what we're doing. We are standing in a confident expectation. See, in each parable, there was a confident expectation of the return of the king, the return of the master. If we, you're fearful for his return, chances are you're not ready for his return. But in each one of those parables, there was a confident expectation that the king was coming. And he was coming with reward in his hand. He was coming not only just to fix all the problems. He was coming to a people that are victorious and spotless, as the scripture says. He's coming back for a bride that's been refined. And that's what we're doing right now. That's the process that we're walking through right now. Because there is a final judgment. You can read that in chapter 25. But for the righteous, it's it's a good day. For those who are found righteous in Jesus, it's a good day. For those who have been faithful, it's a good day. For those who are filled with the Spirit of God, it's a good day. For those who are good servants, it's a good day. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with that, and the anticipation of things being shaken or things actually shaken, or the anticipation of Jesus returning is frustrating to you, if you're watching at home and this message has filled you with fear, that is the enemy trying to twist and manipulate the Word of God. You should be filled with expectant hope in the return of Christ if you're connected with him. So the great news is this. He's come to bring salvation. He's not, he's not saying, hey, figure it out on your own. He's literally here to bring you into salvation and into relationship with him. And so put your trust in him. Put your hope in him. If you're doing that, let us know. We'd love to disciple you and show you how to walk with him. If you're here this morning, you want to do that, let us know. You, you are starting that walk with him. But I want to pray. So, Father, I pray for each one of us who are standing. We want to live ready. We want to be filled with your spirit, filled to overflowing. We want to be good and faithful servants who are caring for others and caring for your kingdom. We want to be those who are not just caring for it, but advancing your kingdom. We're thankful for your salvation that breaks through. We're thankful that when everything's shaken, we still have you to turn to. And so we turn to you this morning. We ask you to fill us and make us ready that we could live on purpose and live as you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jake's coming now to close. God bless you. We love you. Thank you for your faithfulness in worship and giving and participation. Let's see his kingdom come together as we walk.